Amen. It's good to worship our great God and King today. Thank you for coming together on this Father's Day. As John said, we worship our great God and we're thankful for the dads that he's given to represent himself in this world. Open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to, just for a moment, ask all the men and the boys to stand up. I'm going to ask my good friend George Prado to come up here too for just a second. But all the men, if you would, stand up this morning. In a world where the enemy would like to tell all of you men to sit down, I want to tell you to stand up. In a world where the world would say, who are you to say that you're supposed to take responsibility and lead your family? I want to say to you, God said to take responsibility and lead your family. Instead of sitting down, we need more men who will stand up. Some of the boys are who are in this congregation this morning. I am so thankful that God has made you as a boy that one day you'll grow up and you'll be a man. Look around this room. You see, you see a group of godly men who are in this room this morning. Watch these men follow their example. Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ. And there are men in this room that I would tell these young boys, follow your dads. Follow these men. What godly men the Lord has given us. Thank God for the men that he's put here at Lawndale. Thank you, men. George Prado, come on up. One of the, one of the men, please stay standing. Come up, George. One of the men that God's put in my life as a mentor is this fine gentleman. He and his wife, Vilma, are here today. We served on staff for a number of years. He was at Calvary Church in Charlotte forever. And one day we're going to have George to come up and to pre uh, preach for us here. What a good, godly man this man George is. George, I would be honored if you would pray for all of these men today. Would you do that for us? Thanks so much, Pastor. It's a great privilege to be here at this church and see what God has been doing in life of Pastor Rodney, the Donna, friends for many years, and serve the Lord together. Our precious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we are a precious Father. Mm -hmm. No matter where we are come, different countries, different nationalities, but in you, Father, we have a Father that covers our needs. And I thank for this man that's standing here, these young boys that stand here with their fathers, that you continue to bless them, that you continue to strengthen them. Father, help us to be exemplary in this nation. Help us, Father, to stand before you, not be ashamed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this church, Father, what this church is doing in this place. Blessed pastor, blessed this man in this church, and the woman, that you continue to serve, Father, you faithfully in this place. Thank you, Lord, so much for your gospel preaching in this place. Bless this church to strengthen us, Father, this day. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, George. Love you, brother. Amen. Men, you may be seated. The church must train its men. I believe that we've raised a generation of men who not only have not been trained to live godly, faithful lives... But they've not seen what it looks like. Think about the number of men. Think about even yourself in your life, the men that you've seen. Now, there are a lot of good men. There are a lot of good 
fathers. But I want to make a distinction between a good man and a good father and a godly, faithful man. And when you think about that, how many godly men have you seen in your life? If we as a church are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, I don't know of too much more important ministry that happens and happens at your house. And who is God made responsible for that? He's made responsible the husband, the father, the man of the house to make sure it happens. Now, granted, he couldn't do it without that helpmate beside him. He couldn't do it without that equal member of this team who comes alongside and carries out her role. How important and how integral that is. But who we're talking to today is the men. And I want to challenge you today as a church. We're going to do what we're supposed to do to equip and train men. But you've got to make yourself available to be trained. Now, again, most men have never been trained for godly manhood. I, I love the definition that Robert Lewis put out years ago in his material, Men's Fraternity. Uh, it basically is made up of three parts. Godly men, faithful men, reject passivity. Probably, that's number one, real men reject passivity. Probably the greatest Sin among men in America today is passivity. Sitting back, watching and waiting and not initiating, not taking responsibility and not carrying out the assignments that God's given them as men. Robert Lewis said it well. Real men reject passivity. Now the second thing he said is they accept responsibility. That is, God's told us as men what we should do, how we should live, uh, our, our character. He's told us uh, what we should do as far as our, our conduct. He's given us specific instructions, and so men, real men, take responsibility. The third thing he said that real men do is lead courageously. Take those first steps. Get out in front not willing to, I mean, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to be inconvenient, willing to be awkward, willing to get beyond what we've done in the past, lead courageously. Real men reject passivity, accept the responsibility, and lead courageously. Now, if I had to narrow it all down, I might would put a, a definition more like this. Real men accept their God-given responsibilities. I think we could narrow it down. Real men accept their God-given responsibilities. What is the Bible clearly instructed for men to be and to do? It, it's, it's here for us in Scripture. That's what manhood is. We accept the responsibilities that God's given us. Now, since Paul understood the church's responsibility to train its men, he wrote this letter. He understood the responsibility for the church to train its men and its women, all of the people who are connected to the church. But particularly, we're going to take our text this morning and we're going to apply it to men. He understood the need to train men. As a matter of fact, that's the context of this letter. He was continuing to train young Timothy. Timothy had traveled with him on his missionary journeys. Timothy had been part of the work that he had done. Even other letters, we'll see where Paul 
would even say Paul and Timothy too, and then whoever he was writing to in that instance. He had invested significant time because he had spent time with Timothy. He took the command that Jesus gave to make disciples seriously. Now before we get to our text in 1 Timothy 4, look over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice some of the personal things. Paul getting ready to be martyred. Most historians say that he was beheaded shortly after he wrote the second letter to Timothy. Notice the personal nature of what he was saying to this young man that he had discipled. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you had heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I I love how Paul was referring to things that he had already taught Timothy. There was a pattern involved. Over the course of Timothy's life, he had heard a number of things, some of them probably over and over again. Some of you kids, you're hearing certain biblical truths and words from your moms and your dads. And right now, you may think, oh man, not again, same thing. But one day you're going to look back and you're going to be so grateful for that pattern of sound teaching. Some of those things that were repeated and in your mind they're going to play back. When your dad would say to you, work hard as unto the Lord. When your dad would say to you, leave it better than you found it. When your dad said, who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harms. And, And when he is saying those biblical truths, They'll come back and you'll be grateful for them. Paul, as he wrote Timothy, even in this second letter before his death, I'm sure there were things that were registering in Timothy's mind that he had heard Paul say time and time again that was godly biblical truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, notice what he said, 2 Timothy 2, 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Think about the the teaching that Paul had given Timothy over the years, this faithful deposit, this good, sound, healthy doctrine. And he's saying, Timothy, what's been given to you, entrust to other men who will entrust it and give it to other reliable men. Paul had spent significant time teaching and training and now trusting Timothy to pass this good news along. Notice in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Alconian. At Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Did you pick that up? You have followed my teachings, my conduct. Men, that's the kind of life that we want to live. That others can follow, that they can set their, the course of their lives because they see what true north looks like. That same idea that Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the kind of men that God's raising up who will be willing to say, don't do what I do, do what I say, but they'll say rather, do what I do and do what I say. That's the kind of men that God's raising up. Can you imagine 
trying to do certain things in life without some kind of example to follow or a model that's come before you. I, I think about our Vacation Bible School theme. You, you see it up here before us, uh, concrete and cranes. Now, I will say I was a little concerned, and I think the cameramen just had a heart attack because I moved from behind the pulpit, right? <laughs> but I, I thought about the shovel when I... Ca- you know, I could take this one of two ways, right? Being at the pulpit... Now, I'm going to take it that we're digging for truth, right? You're supposed to be laughing with me about that. We're digging for truth. But I I can fairly well use that shovel. You know, I think I can go and I can dig a hole. But now, if I were to go out in the parking lot to that dump truck that's sitting out there to remind all of you about Vacation Bible School, and I try to get in that dump truck and drive it around. Now, Arville did that yesterday, by the way, our, our children's pastor. He did that. But if I were to get out... And, and I had a load of dirt, and you told me to put that load of dirt out behind the back of the church, and you gave me a spot. I probably would have a hard time getting the truck back there, much less maneuvering the levers to get the, the dump on the back. So I don't even know what you call that part on the back. The dump on the back to unload that dirt. Now, what about even a... I mean, I understand a dump truck may not be quite as complicated for some of you guys, but what about that crane operator? What if you put that man, put me or most any other man in that crane that hundreds of feet tall and, and told us to move whatever it is that's probably a couple of tons over to another location while not knocking down, hurting anybody or anything else? That'd be a pretty complicated process for most of us. You you would need someone who's trained to operate that crane. So in the same way, why do we think we can live this Christian life and it just comes naturally? It goes against the grain of everything that we've been taught. It goes against the grain of everything you watch on television. It goes against the grain of most everything you've been taught in public school or universities. This Christian faith that we're talking about, there's got to be training. And the church is responsible to train its men. There are three kinds of discipleship relationships that I think every man ought to have. Now, at Lawndale, we talk about our five core values. One of our core values is a discipleship culture. We talk about biblical worship. We talk about intergenerational ministry. We talk about family equipping and leadership development. But we also talk about a discipleship culture. I I don't think any church is able to be called a church that doesn't focus on discipleship. How can we, whose head, Jesus Christ, modeled for his life on earth, making disciples, how could we not do what Jesus did? He invested the, lar- the portion of his ministry, those three years, a large part of it, in teaching and training a group of 12 men. And then before he left to go back to heaven after his death and his resurrection, before his ascension, he told those men and the others who were around, he said, now you go and you make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How could we be faithful to Jesus at all if a discipleship culture wasn't what we're about? We're, we're to be training, and, and again, because we're talking specifically to men, we at Lawndale, we're committed to training men. Would to God that he raises up men who want to be discipled and grow in their faith, and would to God he would raise up 
older godly men who want to disciple and pour into our younger men. There, there are older men at Lawndale that if I was a younger man and knowing what I know today, I'd be lining up knocking on their door. I say, man, I would be saying, I, I need some help. Would you spend some time with me on a weekly, maybe every other week, maybe once a month? Could we just meet? Could I ask you questions? Would you teach me how you spend time in the Bible? Would you teach me how you would you teach me how to witness? Would you teach me how to love my wife? Would you teach me how to how to raise my kids at this stage in life? Somehow we think we can do it all ourselves. The writer of Proverbs knew full well that that wasn't the case. Because most of us men, we get our mindset one way and we think we're right. And oftentimes we're not. There's a, a way that seems right unto man, but it leads to destruction. And the person who doesn't seek wise counsel, the Bible says that man is foolish. So every man ought to have three types of discipleship relationships. He ought to have a Paul in his life. A father figure. For Timothy, Paul was that father figure. Some of you grew up with a biological dad that taught you the truths of God. He modeled it well. And there's no dad that's perfect. Every dad that's ever lived, he has made mistakes. He's been weak. You have, we talk about marriage oftentimes, a sinner married to a sinner. Neither one of them is going to be perfect. But we talk about parenting as well. We're raising sinners but we ourselves are sinners as parents. It's going to be imperfect. None of us dads are going to do it perfectly. When all is said and done, we have our weaknesses and we have our tendencies. And we have to keep coming back and, and learning and growing and maturing. Any man that says, this is who I am and I'm not going to change, is already living in rebellion. Because every man, if you follow Christ, should be constantly changing. Because you should be becoming more like Christ. There should be changes that are occurring in our lives. Because we're becoming more like Christ. So we need a father like Paul. Even if you didn't have a biological dad. There are spiritual dads within this congregation that God has provided for us to pour into the younger men. I would love to have a list of younger men 10, 20, 100, 3,000 younger men that would say, sign me up. I want to spend time with an older godly man. And our commitment is that we would match you up with an older godly man in this church. Not a man who is perfect. There's none of those around here. But a man who can teach you the things he's learned from the Word of God and teach you from some of the successes that he's had and can teach you from some of the failures that he's had. I, I, I think even as men, sometimes we think, well, you know, I've, I've lived long enough now, I think I've got it. Don't ever think that. Just as soon as I think, you know, I think I've got this thing down, I hit another stage. You know, you, you get married, and you start thinking, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to pick up on this. Then you have kids, and everything changes. And then your kids turn into teenagers. I mean, you think, man, I've got this thing down, you know, parenting. Then they hit teenagers, you say, what happened? And then they become adults and they get married and then you send them out. And, and you're, now you're the parent of an adult and now you're, you're home and it's just you and your wife again. And every, every stage is different. 
And why do we think somehow we can walk through all these stages by ourselves and we'll all be okay? If you think that, again, I'm going to come back to Proverbs, then you're acting foolishly. God means for us to walk together and have older godly people speaking into our lives. Everybody needs a Paul. We call that a father figure. You may call that a coach or an instructor, someone who loves Jesus and who loves you and who will coach you along, sometimes with a word of encouragement, sometimes with a kick in the seat of the pants. Everybody needs a Barnabas. All of you men need brothers in Christ who are walking through life in similar circumstances and stages of life as you are. Where you're able to confess your weaknesses and your failures. Where you're able to come alongside of each other and encourage each other. Just like you need a coach, you need some teammates who are in the game with you at this stage of life that you're exhorting one another, encouraging each other. And sometimes Barnabas's get up in your grill because they know that you can do better and they know that you're not following Christ in that area of your life. And a, a Barnabas, an encourager, one that you fellowship with, your teammates, and everybody needs a Timothy too. Someone who's a little bit behind you. They're not quite at that stage where you are. And you want to bring them along because you've already walked through that. You've already made some of those dumb mistakes that they don't have to make. Now they may choose to, but... If they do, let it be, I should have listened, rather than nobody told me. Everybody needs a son in the faith that you're coaching now. You, you've had a coach, you've had teammates, you know what it's like, and now you're coaching other people. You have a Timothy in your life. One, one of my goals at Lawndale, as a part of a discipleship culture to begin with, to begin with, my goal is that every man in this church body will go through a discipleship process called Every Man a Warrior. Book one in Every Man a Warrior is about your walk with God. It teaches you some skills to learn how to read the Bible. How many men have opened up this book, tried to read it, and they didn't understand it, and they thought, well, that's not for me, and they laid it over to the side. Basically, they had no one to teach them how to get in this book, how to read it, how to understand it, how to listen to God. Book one is how to, how to read scripture, how to listen to God. And it also covers prayer, how to talk to God. God speaks to us through his word. Now let's have this conversation. Men need to learn how to talk to God and depend on him. You come to all kinds of crossroads in your life as men, all kinds of places where you say, I don't think I can take this next step. I don't think I can keep going in the same direction. I can't keep doing this. And God speaks to you that word that you need for that moment. And then you talk to God about where you are and how much you need his help. That's the way God meant for it to be. That grows us in our relationship with him. So, so book one is your walk with God. Book two teaches you how to be a godly husband and a godly father. Book three is all the other issues that men face. Finances, work, difficult times, lust. It's a number of issues. But it's foundational. Now, it doesn't replace the scriptures. But it helps us understand and apply the scriptures. 
It's a foundational piece. Some of you men, you might think, I'm not too sure I want to do that. I want to encourage you today to make a commitment to say, you know, if, if, if our pastor said that one of his goals is that every man works through this series of, of discipleship material, that I'm going to do that one way or the other, whether the timing's right now or whether the timing's in a few months, but I'm going to be committed. I'm going to do that to be a part of this team, this church family, to work through this material together. Everybody needs discipleship. Jesus modeled it, and Jesus commanded it from us. Now, think back to 1 Timothy 4, 7. Here's this mentor, Paul, and this, this, this whole book is a, to Timothy to help him to learn how to pastor this church at Ephesus. And in particularly, he, he's told him about the false teachers that will come in in the first part of chapter 4. And now he's talking about what it really means to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And in that context, next week we'll look at verses 6 through 10 all together. But in that context, he tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, there are some things in life that we just need to avoid, men, because they have little or no value. They have no value or very little value. Many men will come to the end of their lives, and they'll realize, you know, I gave my life for things that really didn't matter. All the stuff that I've done has been pretty much stuff that had no eternal value. I've invested in the things of this world, and I've given my life for things that really have either no or little value as far as eternity goes. Now, I have to be careful in this list that I've put together because I don't mean it to be a legalistic. If you ever participate in some of the things I'm going to put in this list, you're sinful. I think there's a time and a place for a lot of pursuits that we have, for relaxation and for enjoyment, for building relationships. But what I'm trying to communicate is there are some things in this world that we give ourselves to that cause us to neglect the more important things. And we get our priorities all messed up. And we give ourselves to lesser pursuits. It's not necessarily bad. Some of them are bad and sinful. Some of them aren't bad and sinful. Uh, They're just not as good as the best things that we could give ourselves to. And this morning, men, I want you to think about what are you giving your life to? Now, Paul first told Timothy in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent would be dishonoring to God. Don't give yourself to things that would dishonor God. Even maybe a stronger way to say that, we live in a godless culture that will consume your mind and your thoughts with all the worldly stuff around you. And some of it is far from the sound doctrine that the Scripture gives us. Some of, some of it's not just God, godless culture. Some of it's just traditional sayings and ideas and lines of thought. And maybe some examples of that is, you know, we could watch news 24-7, right? I mean, you could switch from one news channel to the next, and there's nothing wrong with watching news. And I, I encourage you, keep up with what's going on. But, I mean, it can become an addiction, right? And it can become 
much more than what is just informing us of what's happening around us. Maybe it's even like the latest novel, some kind of uh, latest conspiracy theory of the world coming to an end. That seems to be a common theme, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe the devil's trying to distract us from the fact that, hey, the world is coming to an end, but let's go to the book that teaches us about that rather than all the great conspiracy novels that are out there. Maybe, just maybe, it's the latest Netflix series that we're going to just dive into and take days and weeks of consuming and being entertained. And again, I, I don't think there's wrong with any, there's anything wrong with watching a series. And I'm just saying, what are you really giving your life for? Is it for the things of the world or is it what's eternal? I, I just listed a few down here. So we, we want to avoid the irreverent silly myths. Well, what about isolated silly, some of you have already filled in that blank. I know you're ahead of me. Video games. Now, again, most, well, some video games are morally neutral. Now, there's some that are grossly immoral. I remember a family that told me that they were doing all they could to protect their kids from a lot of uh, images, pornographic images. They had good safety features on their devices. And, and as the kids were growing up, what they didn't know is that their child was going to the neighbor's house to play video games. And this particular video game, you could unlock doors that would take you into very graphic, ungodly places to see things they shouldn't have been viewing. But what I'm really getting at is that with it, when it comes to something like video games, young men can spend their, their weeks and months and years becoming experts at Xbox and playing the latest Madden or whatever. I think those can be fine. As a grandparent, I want to play some of that with my grandkids. I, I have family and friends. and There's nothing wrong with fellowshipping around or at least enjoying some social activity around that. But there's a difference between giving your life to that and wasting hours at a time that has no eternal value. I think often about the 1 Corinthians 13, 11 passage when it comes to this issue. When I was a child, Paul wrote, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Think about kids playing and entertaining themselves and as we grow up, we learn what's important and how to give ourselves to what's important and eternal. What about incessant, silly recreational activities? Now, there are a lot of things that we do. And again, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't play, go out and play golf. I'm not saying you shouldn't go hunting and fishing. Sometimes those are great family activities. But what about when it becomes a driving passion and it takes you away from your family and it takes you away from what is important? I think we, we should measure that. We should be thinking through that. What about imprisoned, silly substances that have no value, whether it's alcohol or whether it's drugs, and we let our, our lives be altered or consumed? We become addicted to those substances and we, we then are imprisoned by them. What about immoral, silly lust? 
things that we can get addicted to as far as pornographic images. And Paul's saying avoid that stuff. They have no or little value. Some of it's sinful and disobedient and dishonoring to God. Some of it just takes you away from what is really most important. And of course, there's a time and a place for some of those things as well. Hold your place here. Look over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul took pretty seriously this idea of being laser focused on what's eternal. The things that have eternal value. Notice what he said here in Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, chapter 11 is this hall of faith. People who gave up everything. They were willing to go to their deaths to be obedient to God and to make his glory known on this earth. And he said, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith now notice in that verse 1 he makes a distinction between weight and sin and when I was a teenager training for sports there were days I would go out and I would run and some days I would strap some leg weights on my ankles I don't recommend that I think it's bad for you to do that but I remember trying to train, and I'd put those weights on, and, and I, then I would take those weights off, and it was like I was floating on air. I mean, I was the fastest guy in my own eyes that there possibly could have been. But those weights held me back, and I thought I was doing some good training with that. In the same way, the Christian life, there are some things that some of you men need just to take off. You need to get rid of. You need to cast it out of your life. You've already been feeling convicted by God about it. You already know that it's getting in the way of your marriage or getting in the way of your time with your kids. or It's already consumed you where you feel like you don't have time for anything else. There's some, some weights that you just need to get rid of. Now, there's also some sin. Things that we know are ungodly, that whether it's addictive or, or whether it's just gratifying and it draws me to that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, lay aside those weights, lay aside those sins, whatever's getting in your way from running the race that you've been given to run. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 also deals with this. I, I, again, Paul takes this pretty seriously as he's talking to Timothy about training. Train yourself. And when I read what he wrote to the Corinthian church, I see how serious he is about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. You get the picture. Everybody's running. Everybody's living life. But Paul is saying, as a follower of Christ, we don't just run. We run to win. We give it all we've got. We surrender everything. And we practice such self-discipline, we're willing to train so diligently to bring our bodies under control. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty 
drastic statement. It's a penetrating statement for us. Don't settle for sin. That, well, you know, I've lived this much of my life this way. I might as well just keep on living. Don't settle for sin. Don't settle for okay. Don't settle for just being a man or being a dad. Be a godly man. Be a godly dad. In some ways, it's a little bit like junk food. I, I love junk food. I can eat a bag of potato chips at a time, especially if they're barbecue. I can eat a pan of brownies. I, mean, I, I can eat junk food. I, I, I love it. But I know long term it's not good for me. I know it messes up uh, my, the blood flow, my heart. My, I, I know it, it, it does. Junk food, it might taste good, but I know long term it's not good for me. And men, I would tell you, a lot of the things that you're consuming with the time in your life, it's like junk food. It, it, it's fun, it's good, you think, but long term, you're going to look back and there's a lot of mistakes that are being made because you're not living your life for what's really eternal. Avoid pursuits that have no or little value. But secondly, engage pursuits that have eternal value. Paul not only gave the negative, the prohibition, but he gave the positive. Rather, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Now think about that word train. No man has arrived yet. Every man, no matter what stage you're in, needs training to continue not only in your stage, but to prepare for the next stage. God means for us to be in ongoing training. This word train comes from the same word we get our English word gymnasium from. It does speak of discipline. It does speak of change. It does speak of development and learning and growth. And probably one of the most difficult things is just getting started. When I've quit exercising for a while, one of the hardest things is to start back. When I've stopped eating right, one of the hardest things is to start eating right again. And, and these are moments when God gives us to start over. In a service like this today, to be able to say, you know, maybe I haven't spent my time with eternal investment in mind. Maybe I haven't given myself to the most important things. God, today I surrender to you, I, I give myself, I, I'm willing to, to train, I'm willing to change and grow and learn, train. And, and, and notice he said, train yourself. I, I've been speaking about how it's important that older men speak into the lives of younger men, how there needs to be discipleship, at least the more spiritually mature should speak into the lives of those who are less spiritually mature. But notice Paul says, train yourself. He had invested a lot in Timothy, but there's a point in which Timothy had to take responsibility for himself. Train yourself. I, I, I can't take that next step for you, Timothy. I, I can't read the Bible for you. I can't pray uh, in place of you. I can pray for you, but I can't take your place in your own relationship with God. I, I, can't, I can't witness for you, Timothy. I can't take your responsibilities that you're going to be re responsible to God for. I can't do that for you. Train yourself. Maybe we've used way too many excuses like Moses for too long. I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I, I'm not eloquent enough. 
Lord, could you just let somebody else do this? Maybe, maybe we've made way too many excuses instead of, you know what, I need help. And I'm going to ask one of my pastors or I'm going to ask one of my deacons or I, I, I'm going to start getting trained. Train yourself, take responsibility, and then train yourself for godliness. Remember the mystery of godliness at the end of chapter 3? What it took for us to be right with God? Well, Jesus coming and living a perfect life and being that qualified substitutionary atonement, the Lamb of God for us. He died for our sins and He rose from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. How am I ever going to live up to what God expects? Well, I, I can't. But God works in me. With God, all things are possible. So what does a godly, faithful man look like? Well, if you look back in chapter 3, you see that list of qualifications for elders and deacons. It's not because it's only the elders and deacons who are supposed to live like that. It's because God expects that of all men. And only those who have grown in those things are those men who are qualified to serve in those roles. But all of us, that's what a godly, faithful man should look like when you look back into chapter 3. But then what does he believe? Well, the sound doctrine. Just earlier in chapter 4, he talked about false doctrine. Well, a godly man believes the Word of God. He, he believes the truth of God. He believes the Scriptures. And what does he do? Well, a godly, faithful man, he walks with God. He is in the Word. He is praying. Again, not legalistically to check a box, but he's growing in his relationship with God. How can a man lead for God if he's not willing to listen to God? He's walking with God. He, he prays with his wife. He's growing spiritually with her. He's leading her into the throne room of God. He's praying over her. He's praying for her. He's praying with her because they're a team. They're one. They're walking this journey together. He worships with his family. He comes to church with his family because they get to hear the word of God and they corporately worship God together and they're connected to other men and women in the body of Christ that we all encourage each other. But it's not just worshiping at the church meetings, but it's also worshiping at home when a godly man is willing to open up the scriptures and say, family, I was reading in 1 Timothy this week and the verse that stood out to me was 1 Timothy 4 verse 7. Let me read it to you. And let's talk a little bit about that. Now, can, now let's pray and let's ask God to help us. He, he regularly brings his family to the word of God and leads worship at his own home. And he enjoys his family. He's making disciples, but it's not in a rigid, harsh, ugly, mean, spirited way we're, we're going to have some fun too. Sometimes we talk about family devotions. We say, read, pray, sing, and then play. Read, pray, sing, and play. Because we want to remind men that your family should know you're enjoying them. That you're glad you're these kids' dad. And you take seriously your responsibility to make disciples. But you also are thankful that God has given you those kids to raise and then finally, a, a, a godly man guards himself and his family, keeps the go ungodliness out, shelters them, and as they're older, they begins to teach them about those things so that they're prepared to 
to be attacked and to be tempted. They're prepared for those things. And yet, all too often, kids are sent out of the home as sheep without a shepherd, not prepared for the battle that's getting ready to be waged against them. He guards himself and his family. I've already given you one piece of bad news. Most men have not been trained to do this. The second piece of bad news is you don't have what it takes. You can't do this. But what I would say to you, and what I've already said to you, is that it's the gospel that changes the hearts of men. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll never be a godly man. You'll never fulfill the missions, the mission that God's given you and the assignments that he's commanded you to carry out. But God, because of what Jesus has done for you, he will change your life through Jesus' death and resurrection and you can become his follower and you can become more like Christ and you can lead your family in a godly manner. The church must train its men. Way too long, the church has sat back and watched its men be swallowed up by the world. And today, I offer to you as the pastor, the senior pastor at Lawndale, Lawndale wants to train its men. As I've said, Lawndale wants to train its women too, and we have those paths for that. But today, specifically, men, don't keep doing life on your own. Don't keep trying to figure it all out. And what you have figured out, don't keep it all to yourself. As the men go, so goes the church. As the men go, so go the church. As the church goes, so goes the community. And it comes back and falls on the responsibility of the church to train its men, for its men to make itself available to be trained. And God is honored, he's glorified, and he begins to do a great work within the community and the world. We experience revival in the church when the men step up, and we experience awakening in the community because the world sees what a godly man looks like. Men, are you with me? I'm challenging you today. God has a much greater purpose for you than the world does. God has such great work for you to do that he's called you out. And you have the opportunity to be his man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can come before you today and worship you. I thank you that you've shown us what fatherhood really looks like. You are our perfect father. You are a good, perfect father. I pray that you will call our men out here at Lawndale, that we'll settle for nothing less than laying aside the weights that have kept us from being the men that you want us to be. Help us to lay aside the sin that that so easily besets us, that hinders us from running for you. And I pray that today that you'll help this group of men who've gathered in this place today to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and bow in complete, humble submission 
to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.